And now, coming to you from Mid-American 2 in Kansas City, it's Jonathan Strahan and Garrett K. Wolf with very special guests Joe Walton and Eugene Fisher on the Good Street Podcast! Yeah, it's, it's, we're, we're recording this in the morning, uh, and it seems to me to be very early in the morning. <laughs> and last night there were parties, uh, so... I'm, I'm, I'm useless. But I want to congratulate Eugene. I never got a chance to congratulate you on the Tech Tree Award. Oh, thank you. Um, and uh, for the new mother, right? That is story. correct. Terrific story. It's a terrific story. Thank you. With a title borrowed from Lucy Lane Clifford, if I'm not mistaken. Yes, I, uh, I had some internal debate about that. I decided uh, the 100-year mark was where I drew the line before it was fair game to... to Say I was just in conversation with, as opposed to stealing. <laughs> okay. What what I thought we'd uh, maybe talk about to get started, and actually ties in with the in conversation with comic quite nicely. Is yesterday, as we record, you Joe were on a panel about short fiction in the nineteen eighties, and I was on a panel a bit later about the short fiction scene today. And I'm kind of curious about how, first of all, you felt the scene was like when you entered it as a new writer. And then to compare that with how, how you know, Yuji feels about it now. So. Well, when I, I was not, in fact, a new writer in the 80s. I wasn't a writer at all. I mean, I was writing. I was writing in my notebook, but I wasn't submitting stories. I wasn't finishing and completing and submitting stories and writing things. I was, I was writing, but nobody was seeing what I was writing. I wasn't connecting as a writer. What I was in the 80s was it was a voracious reader. Um, so I was on the the short fiction in the 80s panel as the consumer and it was very very interesting because Ellen Dutler was on the panel and she was editing Omni throughout the whole period and Michael Swanwick and John Kessel were on it who were writing and who they were breaking in in the 80s and I was reading them as they were breaking in and uh, Gordon Van Gelder who was a a sort of proto-editor at the time because he didn't actually take over at FNSF until 97 so uh, he was sort of reading all these magazines the same way that I was, but he was in the US and I was in the UK. And so we, we talked a lot about what the field looked like from inside, from the first three people's point of view, and then from outside, uh, mm-hmm. from our point of view. And so there was all the stuff like that was going on in Cheap Truth and the cyberpunks attacking everybody else and everything like that, which was sort of invisible from the outside, uh, but to the inside was very, very important. But one of the very interesting things that came up was what a, what a golden age of short fiction it was, up, up short length in the 80s. There were so many people doing such great work, and new, new writers like Judith Moffat and Nancy Cress coming along and sort of blowing everybody away, and also Swanwick and Kessel and Jim Potter Kelly. And, and, uh, and then there were people like Varley and Le Guin, who had emerged in the 70s, and Delaney, who had emerged in the 60s, and Silverberg, who was still doing great work that was part of the conversation, that was just very, very exciting to see all of that. And when you look back at it now, you mostly think about the new writers of the 80s when you think about the 80s. But the actual scene of the 80s was the the whole gestalt and the, the whole thing. Now, what I'm curious about, to flick it around to... Today, actually, we yeah. were thinking about this. Uh, we were talking in the lobby before we came in about how you, how it is to be a writer today, and how in conversation with other writers you are, how you feel about the market you're interacting with, and everything. Uh, what I'm curious about is, do you feel there is a coherent 
cohort of writers you're a part of that are your contemporaries that you're aware of as being your group that you're moving through time with together? Hmm. Um, it's, I think I do, but I think it's a fuzzy edged thing. Um, I think that, uh, it's not necessarily, you know, sort of contemporaries by age. Like I have, like, a, like the nucleus of it, I came into the field, uh, like a lot of people through attending a clarion workshop. Um, basically, and that's when I first started meeting people, and uh, and so like I can watch the people that I went to Clarion with, you know, publish their things and get their book contracts. Uh, but there's also just the people that I'm reading and the the people that I'm excited about, uh, you know, when a new story of theirs hits, you know, social media or something. Yeah, you know, there's a new uh, there's a new Carmen Machado story. There's a new John Chu's story, there's a new, and not, and some of these people I've become close friends with, and, and some of them aren't, but they're the, the people doing work now who've been publishing largely contemporaneously, um, uh, with Ion. We might be, you know, different ages, but it, it sort of seems like we're in, in the same sandbox. It yeah, feels. Um, um, you and I last week were, were both saying that we were super excited about the fact that John Castle's got a book coming out yes. next year that is a sequel to Stories for Men, or in the same universe mm. as Stories for Men. And so, so EJ and I were both jumping up and down at the idea that John Castle, who is an 80s emerging writer, has a novel coming out in 2017. Um, and so, so both of us in whatever generation were excited by that and feeling connected to, to that. Do, do you feel that, um, as it was in the 80s, like you were talking about with Le Guin and Silverberg and these mm. kind of people who went on through the 90s doing the same thing, mm. that there's a generation of older writers who are still active in, science, in short fiction that are contributing <clears throat> inspirational and major work, or do you feel it's more generationally shifted? It, it really depends what you count as a generation. I guess, yeah, I, I guess one of the ways of asking that is another major novel coming out next year is from Ken, Ken Stanley Robinson, again, right. who emerged in the Absolutely. 80s. And is that important to younger writers that there's a big, you know, Castle, yeah. that there's a Stan Robinson novel coming out? I mean, I feel like for, uh, there was a couple of years there where I sort of more than once read about some, like, new, not necessarily new, but some science fiction writer had a first collection coming out. Uh, like on a blurb or an review or something, say, "Oh, like uh, we think that this is the next Ted Chang." And whenever I read that, I thought, "Ted's still here. I mean, yes. we still have the first Ted Chang." Yeah. Yes, yes, and he's still doing. Yeah, and he's still doing amazing work. Of his full That's work. one of the things yeah. I had discussions with younger writers, and not just science fiction writers. And suddenly, it's like Kelly Link is a great eminence. Like she's one of the senior writers that people have been looking wow. up to. <laughs> not that she doesn't deserve it, but Kelly is. Pretty yeah. cool with that blue black lipstick or whatever. One of these she, things she, with time. I guess so. <laughs> Keeps on going. But you, you mentioned Kim Stanley Robinson. Mm -hmm. He he he's someone who came up on the panel yesterday. Michael Swanwick said when he read Black Air, he thought, "Whoa, somebody's done something better than I've ever done. I've got to emulate that." <laughs> yeah. And that he was in competition. Whereas I have never felt like that with anybody. That I mean, I'm a novel mm. writer, not a short story writer for the most part. But but when I see Kim Stanley Robinson's got a new novel coming out, I am absolutely going to read that. I am totally mm. going to consider that as part of everything that he's written. Because he's somebody who's never got boring. He's never done the same thing. No. He's never, he's always experimental, he's never dull, he's never got into a groove of, oh right, okay, Kim Stanley Robinson, but guess I'll get to that sometime. It's always going to be something different and exciting. And, and, and I think that, that, right, 
there are people who are like that, who keep doing that, who keep on remaking themselves and remaking the field. And then there are other people where, okay, they're a good, solid writer, they've got something new out, okay, but it's not going to turn everything upside down. Yeah, there the, are the writers who basically know what their audience wants, they know how to do it. Mystery writers, are, the mystery right. field is full of people like that. And it's nothing wrong with making a living, but I, I would think if you're a younger writer, that's not, you know... Okay, if there's a 14th Ender orthogonal sequel, whatever it is, um, right? that's fine for people who like that. But you're not going to be excited about it in the way that the original Ender's Game and Speaker for the Dead were yeah. exciting in, in right. 84 exactly. no. and 85. No. Um, it, it's not going to blow the top of the world right. in the exactly. same kind of way. I think one thing that is true, and I, you know, I pick it up and you listen to what you're saying, is that, I mean, you're talking about the continent, I was saying about generations, that time passes a lot more quickly in a so, the social media environment. Yeah. So Kelly, who's probably been around for 20 years. Yeah, she's been around for you know, does seem like she's old as a career, even though she's a young person with a long career in front of her. What? And I think part that, of that's the measure of the impact that she had, yeah. which was just astonishing at the time. I, I know writers twice her age who were saying, I can't believe I'm being influenced by this kid. <laughs> <laughs> but, but isn't that also what writing's about? It's being influenced by everything around you? I mean, aren't you? I mean, I, I mean, I know because it's it's, it's a public thing. You read a lot. I do. I read and that's got to feed into what you're doing when you go, come to write your own work when you're writing the you know, the Just King series, this sort of stuff. It's got to really change just what you. Just Sorry, <laughs> but yeah, sorry. It's been yeah. a long convention. Yeah, yeah. No, absolutely. Yeah, I I am influenced by everything I read on the field, but I don't think it comes out sounding like everything else. No, well, <laughs> which, which is the challenge. <laughs> How about for you? I mean, you're still at the comparatively early stages of your career. Are you finding, you know, what's influenced you when you look back? Um, looking back, I mean, I can I can point very explicitly to the, the writers that got me interested in writing again. It's like mm-hmm. I'd written in high school, but I'd, I'd stopped in college and then I started again. Um, and uh, and it was, you know, it was following, it, it was three things. It was following a link from Boing Boing to Magic for Beginners. Mm-hmm. Um, and reading it and thinking, I've never seen fiction that's doing this before. What else is out there? Um, uh, I think reading, like, what else is out there led me to, I think Nicholas White was at the time doing a series of reviews of things that had won both Nebula and Hugo Awards, yes. um, which led me to the work of Ted Chang, um, which was also like, oh, this is incredible. And that combined with, um, I started reading... Strange Horizons, which had been linked from uh, webcomics that I was reading. So Joey Como um, used to, for many years, only recently ended, did a webcomic called A Softer World, where it was just uh, photographs and short snatches of sort of poetic language um, that that, that I enjoyed very much. And he started writing fiction and published it on Strange Horizons. And so I went there to read his short stories, um, and there I encountered Megan McCarran. Mm-hmm. Um, and I thought, this is someone who's my age, who's producing work that I'm finding as exciting as, you know, the Kelly Link stuff that I'm reading. There are no excuses. Like, <laughs> I, I no longer get to draw that divide between the the them, the eminences who are doing the things and that are getting boing-boinged and what I can produce on yeah. my laptop. Like, look, here's someone who's doing work that's just as brilliant, who, you know, is... It does not have any of the like social status signifiers to allow me to separate uh, her from me in my mind. It's like, well, I guess it's time for me to start again. <laughs> ah, that's interesting. 
But you're, you're also unusual among our young people that you've read a lot of older stuff because your parents had a joint science fiction collection. That's true. Yeah, my uh, my parents met in Lawrence, Kansas, and used to go to James Gunn's uh-huh. uh, stuff there. And I grew up uh, in you know, reading reading their collection. I've read tons of science fiction from the 40s and 50s and 60s. My actually my my least uh, read decade of the modern field is the 80s because their collection kind of stops when I was born. <laughs> <laughs> and that was a weak period for me, too, for no other reason than I took on an administrative job in the university and, and didn't have much time to keep up with things. So, But then catching up later, as you say, you realize, wait a minute, Stan Robinson started then, so you read back. One of the things that strikes me as interesting, you mentioned magic for beginners, which seemed to have a huge impact. And there are short story writers, it seems, in every generation that just explosively come on the scene. In the 60s, it was Zelazny. The first few yeah. Zelazny stories were just stunning. Um, and then sometimes that doesn't happen, because I think it was, you know, let me think, it might have been in the 80s or even in the 70s when Karen Joy Fowler's Artificial Things came out. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I, I think it was 80s. 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 Okay. Yeah, I think of Karen Joy Fowler as, a, as an 80s. Yeah, and, 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 and it was, I remember, it was a mass market paper. But it... And the brilliant stories, absolutely wonderful stories, and it didn't seem to be explosive at all. Her influence really emerged after she started writing novels. Yeah. Um, so why do some writers explosively enter the field and some take a few years I, to I find it really hard to understand because it's not got to do so much with the quality of the thing really, no. as, as the, the degree of attention. It's almost how... how how many solar flares it's sending off. Mm-hmm. It, it, it's, it's the attention of other people to something. And sometimes I will read something that I think is absolutely wonderful, and I assume that everybody else will be reading it and talking about it, and, and then nobody is. Yeah. Uh, and uh, the example of this that I often give is Susan Palwick's Shelter, the novel mm-hmm. Shelter. Well, I love that book, but, but nobody read it. It, uh, I think he sold eight copies to personal <laughs> friends of mine. You know, it's sunk, it, it, it sunk without trace, but it's a terrific book that should have been really influential. Everybody should have been looking at it. And there are things that that you can do to get people to, to look at things, to try to direct mm. things. And now online, there's a lot of stuff. There's, there's a lot of people reviewing short fiction and focusing right. on short fiction and, and thinking about it. So short fiction is getting people looking at it and caring about it more than at some times where a story would come out and nobody would mm-hmm. see it. So, but, but there's so much. I was just saying, do you think this is a, more an artifact of volume than anything else? I mean, I remember very clearly, because I was 16 years old when the 1980s started, and it's that time in your life when you've got more time available to you than anything else. You can read till 4 o'clock in the morning, right. whatever else it is. And I encountered my first special science fiction bookstore around that time. It seemed to me you could keep track of every single major book published and every single major magazine story that came out without a great deal of effort. Now there is an, a myriad way that novels get out, and far beyond that for short stories. It's possible for Mary Rickert to put out her debut novel and nobody ever sees it mm-hmm. because it comes out from some odd publisher. If it comes out from a small press, it may appear and disappear in fractions of a period of time. And I wonder if one of the things that we have paid uh, for uh, in this era of ease of access to publishing and ease of entry to the market is focus. 
I don't know. Uh, I think that having the diversity of things out there is great. I, I think that is a, an alloyed good. But I do think that it is more difficult for things to shine in that comet way mm -hmm. that you're talking about the Zelazny and Vali did in their days for something to do that. But I think if we were looking at novels and we were looking at this year, we would say, right, Charlie Jane Anders, All the Birds in the Sky. We would say Ada Palmer's Too Like the Lightning. Mm. And as, as first novels, as, as emergent people that are getting attention, that, that people are looking at and caring about. But there are probably other books that are good, maybe not as good as those two, because those are pretty damn great books. Mm. But, but there, there are probably other debut things that I haven't seen because direction, spotlight has not been shining on them, yeah. and they are not shining like comets, yeah. um, and that maybe I'll find in five years' time, as, as happened to me with Molly Gloss's Dazzle of Day, that yeah. came out in inside a paper bag, and nobody told mm. me about it, and I eventually ah. found it out, oh, what, what is this? This is great. Yeah. Uh, and, and Shelter, as I said, the, the, this, this happens with things. But I don't understand how it is that some things get the attention, other things don't get the attention, because it isn't quality. No. I mean, I mean, the things that get the attention have to have quality, mm -hmm. but but the, there are other things that have quality that don't get the attention. I think attention. it's zeitgeist. I mean, I remember when Ted Chang put, uh, published Tower of Babylon in Omni Magazine, and this is before Ted Chang was air quotes Ted Chang. Oh, no one has ever heard of it. This is first story. Yeah. And it just rippled through through the genre, and people were like, for many winners of the Nebula Award. I remember when uh, Paolo Bacigalupi's debut, debut novel, The Wind-Up Girl, was released, and they had the first boxes of it at the Worldcon dealer's room mm -hmm. that year, and you'd hear the ripple go through through the dealer's room. Like, as people and the people start coming towards it, they all disappeared within yeah. half an hour. So, so it, it's people so, being ready so for the it. Way, the way describe this is that some writers emerge fully formed from the head of Zeus, yeah. and others emerge slowly from the primordial slime. <laughs> <laughs> and there, but there are some of those buzzword kinds of stories that, that seem to be affecting everybody, and then, and then it fades. They're, they're still, uh, uh, yep. David Marisek's The Wedding Album. Yes. Terrific story. I'd never seen anything like Brilliant it before. Brilliant story. And, and everybody was talking about it for about two years. And then you know, the, the accounting heads didn't have that much impact, and and David is still writing, but yeah, but he's not, you know, he's not having a career like Selassie had in the sixties. Let me ask, and I'm curious what you think, Eugene. Uh, how do you feel about attempting to structure a career? Is that something you think about? Do you have those kind of goals, <laughs> or is it just I'm writing and I'll see where it takes me? Oh man, uh, Joe is making faces at me because she knows my answer to this question. I'm about to, I'm about to have my highly inadequate answer to this question recorded <laughs> for the internet. Um, uh, no, no, those faces meant lie, lie. Oh, right. Yes. Well, you know, it's a complicated question. So I've been uh, many choices one could go. It's really an age of richness and plenty for the young writer. Um, uh, no, so I mean, my before I was doing writing, I was uh, I was getting uh, an undergraduate degree in physics, and uh, totally thought I was going to be a physicist. Mm -hmm. uh, right up until that point, where I sort of observed myself to not be preparing for the physics GRE the way all the rest of my classmates were, and I thought, huh, this is interesting. I seem to not be going to physics grad school. I wonder why that is. <laughs> I'll keep watching and see if any answers reveal themselves. <laughs> And over the fullness of time, figured out it was because I didn't actually want to be a physicist. Yeah. Uh, and I thought, well, maybe I'll be a 
mathematician. That seems like a fun thing to do. Uh, or Kelly Link and Neil Gaiman are on the faculty for Clarion this mm-hmm. year, and on the in the last year, I've started writing some stories again, inspired by those people who I just named. Um, and uh, they take 18 people a year. I'll give it a shot. Maybe, if so, I'll put off my career in math for a little while and do some writing, and that worked out well. And then I thought, well, it worked out well. I guess I'll try to go to grad school. And I applied to the Iowa Writers Workshop, and I went there. And it's all been very sort of haphazard, and, well, this might be a fun thing to try right now. Um, I have yet to reach that point where, oh, what's the right way to say? I have yet to reach the point where I have felt like I've got a plan, I've got a goal, I'm going to do this. I've really been going so far on what seems interesting and yeah. fun to me to do. So, so there's no distant city on a hill that you can kind of imagine in the distance of how it might be? I mean, I'd like to, you know, I'd like to have a book. Uh, mm-hmm. I would like to, like, sort of these, these touchstones, like, you know, first, like, I would like to publish a story, and then I did that, and like, now I'd like to be in print, uh, and then I did that, and they're like, now I, you know, and then brief break of five years for grad school, um, then I would like to, to publish some, some longer fiction, and I, I published a novella, um, and now I'm, I've gotten, um, some awards recognition, and that, that's all been pleasant, and like, there's, there is sort of like the next thing, like, oh, I haven't done that yet, that's not, let's see if I can pull that off. Um, I'm curious about the uh, Iowa Writers Workshop part of that, because this is something I've had conversations, especially with Kessel and Kelly, because they teach sure. actual colleges, that, the, the, okay, Joe Haldeman went to Iowa a long time ago, but yeah. by and large, Iowa is not known for encouraging or even knowing what to do with younger right. science fiction or fantasy writers. That is absolutely the reputation. Is it not correct? It is not correct. Really? Um, well. And uh, it, it was once correct. Mm, okay. Um, it, it, it's not that that opinion is is wrong, it's that it's outdated. Mm. Um, about ten years ago, I think exactly ten years ago, um, the Iowa Writers Workshop got a new director, Lance Samantha Chang, mm. um, and, uh, and she has done a lot to change the culture there um, in terms of expanding the definition of literature. I think... I think that I'm the first person who went to Iowa already identifying as a science fiction writer mm-hmm. who had a uniformly positive experience. Really? Um, but, for example, yeah. I could not have gotten more institutional support. They gave me one of their top fellowships after I graduated mm-hmm. when I went to them and said, hey, you don't have any undergraduate courses on science fiction writing. You should create an adjunct position for me, and I'll put that together for you. And like, great, let's do that. Mm-hmm. Um, it it couldn't, could not have been more supportive. The New Mother, the story that won the award, was the largest single portion of my master's thesis mm-hmm. at Iowa. So, like, they gave me a master's degree for writing <laughs> uh, science fiction, um, if that speaks to the level of seriousness that they're, they're giving it now. I, it's still not the focus of the program. I'd say no. the majority of the people there... Uh, a, a number of MFA fiction. programs start off with prohibitions against writing any right. kind of genre fiction. Uh, and Iowa used to have that reputation. I know other people have had nightmare stories. Uh, being, But on the other hand, the, the plus side of that is that it means that there's a broader literary community that a young writer can aspire to. In other words, you don't have to aspire to simply being somebody winning a Hugo Award, you, you can aspire to being at least in conjunctions and maybe in the New Yorker and yeah. maybe getting literary attention. And there's lots of stuff, like, I fell in love, I, I came in loving science fiction, and like, in the way you were saying, you know, I was I was not willing to accept a prohibition against that. I was not willing to be told I shouldn't love the literature that I already love. 
But I was completely open to, to, to falling in love with the new body mm-hmm. of literature, and I did. I read a lot of realist fiction now, um, or a lot of, and I also read a lot of science fiction now that's being published by people who publish realist fiction. One of the best books I read in the last year um, was Carola Dibble's The Only Ones, which came out from $2 Radio, which is mm-hmm. not you know, a genre fiction publisher. Um, but it's a, it's a post-apocalyptic first novel about the commodification of bodies and motherhood uh, mm-hmm. that is absolutely top-notch. So, yeah. Well, no, I, I just think that that's, in terms of careers, um, that if you start, if you start when, when you started, Joe, you probably had to think of a career in terms of being a science fiction writer. But now I'm not sure that it's that narrow a focus. I mean, and you got you get a lot of mainstream attention for um, uh, for, for among others. others. Among others, and uh, my real children got a lot of mainstream attention. Mm-hmm. Um, but no, I I never thought about writing anything. I, I never get ideas that are not genre ideas. Mm-hmm. I never ever have a story idea that is not a genre story idea. Even though right. I read a lot of literature, I read a lot of classics, I read a lot of things that are not genre, but all of the story ideas that I have are totally genre ideas. Every single story mm-hmm. idea I've ever had in my entire life has been a genre idea. And even when it's like with My Real Children, it comes close to a mainstream genre, I'm totally doing a science fictional thing mm-hmm. with it. Because that's what's interesting. It's what I, I've written about this in my, my essay on Middlemarch, mm-hmm. uh, that, that God, you've that. got yeah. a wider, <laughs> you've got a wider scope within genre to talk about human nature. Mm-hmm. Um, talking about human nature is, is what literature does. But if you can contrast human nature with alien nature or elf nature or what human nature is like if we live for a long time or whatever, you've just got a more interesting set of answers that, that you can give. It's just more, more fun, more interesting. I'm not talking about having ideas that are, yeah. that are not genre ideas, but having genre ideas written um, and, and getting the attention, basically seducing non-genre readers into your fiction. Uh, you yeah. do that very well. Graham Joyce did that brilliantly. Yeah. Um, and well, I think I think there are some books of mine that are accessible to non-genre readers, mm-hmm. and then other books that are much less accessible. The thing that I'm writing at the moment is actually proper science fiction and set on Mars, and mm-hmm. um, I don't know how well non-genre yeah. readers are going to do with this, <laughs> even though uh, they could read it. But I, they won't. It won't have a cover that will be enticing to them. Mm-hmm. I shouldn't think. But as far as having a career goes, I've been very fortunate in that I, I wrote a first novel thing that was a big mess. Mm-hmm. And Patrick, I sent it to Patrick, uh, Patrick Nelson Hayden at Tor, and Patrick rejected this with the message that it was the kind of thing that people who are going to write great things later in their careers write, don't try to fix this, write something else. And mm-hmm. he'd taken so long to send me this email message that I had written something else, which was the King's uh, Peace, uh-huh. which he then wrote. Okay. And so... I've been very lucky in that he knew from the beginning I was going to write things that were really different from each other. Mm -hmm. And he's been really accepting of the fact that I write things that are really different from each other and in different subgenres and different. I feel like, okay, done that now, let's do something else. And I've been very fortunate in finding readers who are happy to read Mm -hmm. my books that are all different from each other. And uh, not, not all of them. There are people who like sort of one book of mine and don't like others. But... But I do have a, a, a core group of people who read that and think that what I'm doing is 
is interesting, and, and I'm, I'm interested in what I'm doing. So it is possible to have a career as a writer rather than as a franchise. And you mentioned yeah. Ken Stanley Robinson, who does exactly the same yes. sort of thing. Yeah. You, you, you don't know what it will be, but you know it will be well done. Well. <laughs> <laughs> and it better be well done. We're watching when you. Were, when you were talking about career goals, mm-hmm. when I won the Hugo in 2012, I was, oh, what do I do now? I don't have an ambition anymore. That was my ambition. I, I, yeah. You know, just being nominated would have been enough. That would have been okay. <laughs> um, and uh, I, I really did have to sort of seriously think that, uh, you know, new dreams, maybe better dreams. <laughs> Find a, a way. It's time to go home. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. It, it, was, it was a very strange feeling. That, okay, I have done this thing, which was the pinnacle thing, that I had never imagined doing anything beyond. Yeah. Um, yeah. The, the worst amazing. idea, I think the worst idea... SFWA ever had was that emeritus, emeritus award. They oh, that's so with. horrible. And it was like, and I was at two of these things, and they, they, they give these to writers who are still active but may not be writing genre stuff anymore. And it was, uh, each no. time, each time their acceptance speech sounded like Monty Python and the Holy Grail. I'm yes. still here, I'm getting better, and <laughs> it, yeah, no, it, it, it's a horrible award. It's an award for somebody they think isn't isn't good enough to get a grand well, exactly, award. Exactly, exactly. Like, it's, it's like a runner-up award. It's like the time when the Campbell Memorial gave the first prize to no award and the second prize to Brian Aldis. Thanks, guys. But it's a career award in the sense that it says, you're getting this award and your career is over as of now. Yeah, it's <laughs> horrible. Horrible, horrible. If they ever gave me that, I would absolutely refuse it. They gave it to, Dan- they gave it to Daniel Keyes. Yes, they did. And they gave it to DG Compton. And yes. DG Compton had never been to a science fiction convention. He'd never, before he met me, because that was the Nebs where Farthing was nominated, so I was there. Mm. Before he met me, he'd never talked to anybody. He'd read all his books and could have a conversation about them. I felt so sorry for him. And then there he was <laughs> being given this. You know, dead duck. <laughs> <laughs> I, I felt terrible. I, I, yeah. Let me ask, you're both well-read in the field, uh, far better read than many. How important to you is the idea of genre and keeping fantasy and science fiction different or is blending genres, I mean, which is so common these days, a, a useful thing? Is it unimportant? How do you feel about, about it? Uh-huh. Clarification. Uh, uh, imp- important for what? Like, okay, like as okay, a, okay, let me put this I was on a panel yesterday and somebody said that one of the characteristics of fiction today is that the genre, uh, the, the boundary, the, the, def- the, the boundary between fantasy and science fiction is almost completely pulled down now. It's all a mix of elements and they're used in really interesting ways. But one thing maybe that you lose with that is you lose a coherent core of types of central fiction in those areas. Do you think there's anything I, to that? I think that it's all a Venn diagram and it always has been. And I think I could find you things from any year you like back to 1948 where there are mushy boundaries. Um, and I think the genre itself, genres themselves, are inherently interesting. I am interested in what genres are. 
And I once spent an entire day in the library reading six chiclet novels so that I would know what a chiclet was <laughs> as a genre. And no, I genuinely think the genre itself is an interesting thing. So I like playing with genre, and I like putting genres together. And I've, I've done this in, in quite a lot of, of my work. I mean, Farthing uses mystery stuff to do a science fiction thing, and Hayden uses thriller stuff. Uh, and uh, Tooth and Claw is totally using Trollope. Uh, and... and I think that using the, the pacing of a sentimental Victorian novel to do a fantasy novel or using the pacing of a mystery novel and, in the case of My Real Children, uh, women's fiction, pacing, you put the pacing together to make it work as both things. And it's difficult and it's fun and I think it is an interesting thing to play with. I think straight up science fiction and fantasy... Yeah, you can do that, but there's a defended border and an undefended border, and there's an interesting border and there's a boring border, and there's a thing that a lot of people have done and that anybody can do, and I'm not interested in that, yeah. but I'm interested in going around behind it backwards. Yeah. Uh, so, in necessity, I have an alien explaining how faster than light works in terms of Neoplatonic philosophy. You know, you go up to the second hypostasis and you can't come out earlier than you went in because yes. necessity stops you. And that is entirely a neoplatonic explanation for how hyperspace works. That is no stupider than explanations for hyperspace that you get in science fiction yeah. novels. It's exactly the same. It's just using a different model of the universe yeah. to explain something like that. And people always say the faster than light is fantasy. Well, let's yeah. give them some fantasy. Faster than light. Exactly. And, you know, that's fun. And that is fun to work work around and work through. I, I, I don't see any any danger of the cause of the genres being diluted or, or mm. anything like that. I just see people playing and having fun and borrowing things from all the genres and doing exciting things with them within what I think of as our, our broad genre, which I tend to call SF, which at this point doesn't stand for anything. <laughs> science, science fiction and fantasy, this big line. Yeah. Science fiction is a subset of SF to me. <laughs> and actually, Judith Merrill made that argument back in the 50s because her, yeah, antho yeah. her anthologies were called SF, after the first one, I think, was just called SF, and she very hmm. pointedly didn't say whether that meant science fiction, science fantasy, speculative fiction. It was, yeah. And then she included all sorts of things, Walt Kelly Pogo cartoons in her anthologies. Right, yeah, I remember the, those were really... Bizarre. Yeah, <laughs> I didn't understand. Well, it's like, it's like I think that the uh, that Aurora, uh, the Stan Robinson novel, effectively makes the case, incidentally, that all space opera is epic fantasy, it is a subset of epic fantasy now. How? Hmm. Because interstellar travel is fundamentally unrealistic. Uh, because leaving this planet is fundamentally impractical in, in, in a believable way. So then how do you project a universe filled with life that you can visit in the, the, that is so fundamental to space opera? I mean, space opera basically, to some degree, lifts off from uh, sea adventure stories. I don't think it's true that it's fundamentally unrealistic. Uh, I think that the Fermi paradox is one of the interesting questions of genre that you can come up with your own answer to. And Stan in Aurora was coming up with one answer to it. Yeah, the universe is inimical. Um, the reader is, the, the writer is not on your side. Everything is going to go wrong. I would have liked that book better if everything went wrong. But uh, if it had the courage of his convictions, it just killed everybody on Earth as well. Um, <laughs> that would have been sure if you got to the halfway point of the book, yeah. not to spoil it too much, and everything went wrong in the end. 
Yes, it would have. But, but it <laughs> made me realise. It made me realise there's an unwritten contract of science fiction, which is that things will get very, 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 very hard, but then we'll pull through. We might lose ninety percent. We might lose ninety nine percent, but we'll pull through like seventy. Yeah. But we will pull through. And he breaks that. We will yeah. pull through. They, the universe is inimical. They have to come back. It's really yeah. unusual. And, and the fundamental thought of science fiction is that problems but, are solvable. But it's, I feel yeah. that I feel that Aurora is a very valuable book, though I do not like it for for various reasons. It's, it's not an enjoyable book for me, yeah. but it's a very important book. But I would hate it if all science fiction took that posture. It's it's taking a great mm. interesting stance, but I think that we can still have other answers to the Fermi paradox. We can have other answers to people doing things in space. We can have different kinds of answers there. We don't have to say, all oh, right, okay, he was yeah. right. That's not science. He, he's, he's taking an extreme end position and mm. say, well, if everything was like that. And you can also say, if everything is all 100, then we can have C.J. Cherry's universe with all these aliens. And if everything is all zero, we can have Aurora. And people can take a position that is somewhere in the middle, uh, or, you know, even beyond Cherry, known space and, and yeah. whatever. You can, you can do it. It's all, it's all there. Vinci has a very interesting answer in the Zones books to the Fermi paradox and that. You can come up with new answers and have new kinds of stories. Mm -hmm. And I don't think having one that isn't sort of like reflective of what's achievable in our, like, probably 100% of those answers aren't going to be the right one. Right, exactly. Uh, and that doesn't, no. in my mind, make it fantasy instead of science fiction. No, quite. Yeah. That's the perfect thing about science fiction. Science fiction doesn't give you one future. Science fiction gives you a multitude of futures, so that when we get a different future, we're kind of ready for it. Yeah. And Ada, Ada Palmer's uh, first novel, Too Like the Lightning, I know you've read it, Gary. Mm -hmm. the, the second one is coming out in uh, February, Seven Surrenders. But she has written a very interesting thing on one of the blog tour posts that she did around that book about middle-distance futures. Because mm -hmm. we imagined that in the 60s and 70s and earlier, we imagined we'd be going into space in the 90s and that by now we'd have Mars colonies, right. and we don't have them. It hasn't happened at the speed that we predicted, the exponential speed. But it could still happen more slowly. So she's got a future there where in 400 years' time, Mars is in the middle of being terraformed. There's a colony on the moon, but we're not any further out than that. Uh, and the book is set on Earth. It is a middle future that when people were writing Golden Age SF couldn't have been imagined because they would have been, we will be out in the planets course, by yeah. then. But it's also not, we're just going to stay on Earth and die in a dystopia and choke in our, our wastes. Nice. And I, I've realised recently, I'm getting bored with global warming. It's not that it's not real, it's just I'm tired of seeing it in science fiction. And uh, I think I would like to see, you know, yeah, global warming, we fixed that. Um, <laughs> well, I think that's, but that's, I mean, I think Paolo Bagiglupi's entire career is challenging the Heinlein competent engineer. We right. aren't competent enough to do yeah. what is going to happen. And when you read, even, I, I think Paolo's finally giving up on that. I'm, I'm a very positive, optimistic person. <laughs> but, I nearly slipped my wrist after reading them. Because your stories convince oh. you that nothing can be done. We are not smart yeah. enough to fix this. Yeah, yeah. but I, I really don't think that's the case. So, I don't think global warming is going away in science fiction. I think what's going to happen, and I see it happening, is it gets it is becoming more and more backgrounded as the, as the exactly. seed for story. Yeah. yeah. Which yeah. is a reasonable thing to do. It's yeah. what science fiction does is people cast around trying yeah. to explain the worlds around them. But I think this future idea as a new space for writing into is very, very interesting. Mm. 
Um, yeah. Somebody, some academic years ago, came. I was reading a. Oh, no, it was not even about science fiction. It was a book called The History of the Future by a, a scholar named Pollock. And he was talking about the way people imagine the future tells you what kind of story is going to be told. In other words, a story which is set 1,000 or 2,000 years from now is almost always going to be uh, a kind of utopian uh, didactic story because the, the actual date doesn't make anything any difference. It's the number. Uh, a story that is set in a random 2312, for example, means, okay, we are going to very specifically imagine how we get from here to there. Um, and there are stories that are uh, set in just random 10 million AD stories, which are Jack Vance kind of futures, where you basically can do anything you want to because nobody can possibly figure out how we got from here to there. Yeah. So you write fantasies. Yeah. yeah, so when you say Book of the New Sun, was it fantasy? Book of the New Sun is, a, uh, in Gene's own terms, a science fantasy. Almost everything that happens in it, if you look closely enough, has a far distant past science fiction explanation. Right. The moon has been terraformed. No, absolutely. You know, yeah. But, but it reads, I'm guessing most readers uh, read it as fantasy. I mean, it wasn't a little fantasy award, but it absolutely is science fiction. Mm. There's a science fiction explanation for everything. Yeah. Mythic, as it, mythic resonance as it is. Uh, which I think is just an amazing, fascinating thing to do. Again, we don't need a whole lot of that. But <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's an issue that came up. We've got uh, this, uh, this series I'm editing uh, for the University of Illinois Press. If somebody wants to write a book on Anne McCaffrey, she's an interesting problem mm -hmm. because almost all of there's still a lot of Anne McCaffrey readers. They all think she's a fantasy writer. She was furious about being called a fantasy writer at I, some point. I read about this on on tour. That the time when she started being published. If you wanted to write fantasy with dragons and whatever, you had to pretend it was science fiction. Mm -hmm. Whereas now, fantasy is so much more popular. Uh, we've had this kind of fantasy revolution mm -hmm. where fantasy is what sells. Nobody would do that. People are actually doing the opposite and disguising science fiction as fantasy. I think the other thing that's happening, though, is that science fiction long ago, and both of you know this having read back, it stole ideas from fantasy. Time travel was a fantasy idea. It was, it was in... A Connecticut Yankee before it was in a time machine. Um, telepathy. And, uh, well, it's a yeah, fantasy idea. It is a fantasy idea. Yeah. Uh, but science fiction but, pretended that... Yeah, Cam Campbell with his psi... Psionics. Psionics, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I mean, that was always ridiculous. So I don't know how anybody could possibly have taken that seriously, but... Um, but it was, it was pseudoscience. And yeah, it was pseudoscience. Yeah. So, do you find genre an attractive framework for for telling stories? The, 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 having that limit to push against is. I mean, I I tend to think about these things in sort of like, you know, the 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 skeleton of the, the like the rhetorical skeleton and sort of the uh, the the trope and stylistic flesh and how how these things come together. Like, I think. Um, I was thinking earlier when you you asked about uh, you know whether the Im impossibility of faster than light travel turns uh, space opera into fantasy, um, and I don't think it does because there's there's still the rhetorical uh, there's the underlying rhetorical structure of a space opera story that you know the explanation might not be real but in principle these mechanisms are explicable the, these things are not. Uh, you know, the universe is not playing favorites. Um, you know, something that is 
that is possible for someone within the the, uh, the within the rhetorical framework of a science fiction story, even if, if the tropes are not scientific themselves, should in principle be possible for anyone yeah. uh, in a way that, that does not seem to me to be characteristic of fantasy. Um, and another way of... Uh, and so that's, that's you know, has both... Um, uh, that's a case where, like, the rhetorical structure seems to clearly identify it as science fiction to me, and then, um, you know, the tropes of spaceships as well, versus something like, I don't know, Star Wars seems, like, much more, you know, like, it has the rhetorical structure of fantasy yes. with the tropes mm-hmm. of science Special fiction. people. Yes, right. exactly, yeah. special people. You can yeah. you can be born a magic the, user or a muggle in the Star Wars universe. universe. <laughs> the universe being on your side or whatever, I, I, I think that's a really good... Uh, line to be able to draw that in a in a horror universe the universe is is inimical and in science fiction universe the universe is entirely neutral and i think as a rhetorical stance that's something that science fiction is really solidly stressing and then in fantasy yeah the universe can be on your side yeah um Mm. and that's that's very interesting sometimes in science fiction we go over the top, the whole cold equations thing. Mm. We mm. go over the top in, you know, the universe is neutral. It's the universe that is making us do a terrible thing to a woman. It's not us is... doing this thing. It is the universe because that's math. Yes. It is just <laughs> math. And I think that, that is actually a dangerous rhetorical stance. Mm. But I think the, the general feel of science fiction, anybody can pilot a spaceship. You don't have to be born special. You don't have to uh, be the, the hidden prince. Uh, anybody can meet the alien. It, it'll, it works in this, in this particular very enlightenment way mm. of, of having the, the universe, uh, work. Well, I think there's a, there's even an entry in, uh, include science fiction encyclopedia. I don't remember the phrase, but it's such a common, uh, science fiction motif of the persecuted elite. Mm-hmm. The, the slams, the, the, mm-hmm. the telepaths, mm-hmm. the geniuses, the, 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 and so that's, always looked to me like uh, a sort of self-fulfilling fantasy for science fiction readers. We all felt that way. We were reading science fiction, we were getting persecuted, but really, you know, we well, were going to get and them. And we talked about Ender's Game earlier Ender's today, Game, which yes. is exactly. you know, the, the special bully kid who can save the universe and the siblings where if you just blog hard enough, you'll eventually rule the world. You <laughs> know, <laughs> before there were blogs, when there were blogs, I was like, whoa, like in Ender's Game. <laughs> yeah, oh. So exciting. But yes, yes, you're exactly right. Yeah. And, and I think Heinlein, as well, with his confiding tone mm-hmm. of, you and I are very smart, let me to let you into this secret, you'll understand exactly. this. But, but yeah, which is, a, which is a very interesting uh, mode. To, well, one of the ways, some, some of the fan lingo from the 40s, mundanes is a word that's still around. You still hear yeah. it at conventions like Yeah, well, I even use it without it intending to have a pejorative meaning. Well, yeah. Because sometimes you do want to sort of draw that that line that somebody is within fandom but their partner is a mundane. And I really don't necessarily mean that in a bad way when I say it, but sometimes people hear it in a bad way. I actually found myself at a writers' festival and Charlie Mieville was being interviewed in front of a crowd of just general public and referred to them as citizens and non-citizens. That that mundanes were the non-citizens of the fantastic, and yes. we were the citizens of the fantastic. It's one of those ideas that is pervasive, uh, and is important to us identifying with the fiction we're reading. Like it's kind of like William Gibson describing himself as a native of science fiction who doesn't live there anymore. Yeah, which is 
the, oh. clearly the way he sees his career. And he, yes, his yeah, I, I feel it's a good way for him to see his career. Yeah. And but, you get things, you get books um, like Neville Shute. Neville Shute wrote some science fiction, but the vast majority of what he wrote is not science fiction. But the, the rhetorical angle and the stance that he takes to technology in his ordinary fiction is very much a science fiction stance, uh, which is which is interesting. I mean, that's an interesting. That would be a topic for another podcast altogether. Because we, when you get into this argument of science fiction is fiction about science, then why no. doesn't it include Sinclair Lewis and Angus Wilson and, and all yeah. these other people? Uh, and there is a science fiction attitude that does show up in mainstream fiction, I think. Uh, sometimes. Uh, mm. Sometimes it does. Some people write mainstream fiction as though it was And then you get a mainstream attitude that shows up in science fiction, where you get people writing science fiction with the mainstream levels of, to use this <laughs> word, interiority. Yeah. Yeah. Um, because it, interiority is something that we, in our genre, don't use as much as, as maybe we might. Yeah. Well, it's, 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 when you read some of these radicals, the, Radical point of view stories. I'm trying to think of a robot story I've read within the last couple of months that reminded me a lot of Fondly Fahrenheit. But Fondly Fahrenheit did astonishing things with point of view yes. that today would be considered, you know, radical literary experimentation. <laughs> yes, but also it would be published and people would be excited about it. Mm -hmm. uh, 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 you know, probably more easily than Bester could have published. It, had Fondly Fahrenheit been a first story, it might have been difficult to publish it with that literary experimentation in it. Whereas today, I don't think it would. I think people would be excited by that. Yeah. It would It would be in Strange Horizons. That's um, encouraging them. Yeah. Yeah. We talked about this earlier, Eugene. Do you guys think it's still... Well, do you think it's even a realistic statement? There's a question about whether people are still pushing boundaries today, and there's that sense of really... Uh, stretching what's going on. Do you think that still happens, or do you think it's a, a misconception that, for some reason, say, Tiptree in 73 was a bigger risk-taker than anybody is today? Um, uh, short answer, no. Um, yeah. But, well, like, when we, when we were talking before, uh, it was, um, I, I think it was in terms of, like, uh, Markets that had like defining elements in the field, like Omni in the eighties, was uh, was in some way definitional of a branch of the field, which yeah. which I, I I do think doesn't exist anymore the same way it did then. Um, but in terms of the work that's being done, uh, I think that yeah, there's um, so uh, one of my favorite uh, current new writers is uh, is Carmen Maria Machado. Um, and still my favorite of her stories um, is one who was published in American Reader, but you could classify it as fan fiction, um, because it's, it's called uh, uh, Especially Heinous, 272 Views of Law and Order Special Victims Unit. And what she did was she took the titles of every episode of, I think, the first 11 seasons of Law and Order Special Victims Unit, Unit and then wrote uh, an episode synopsis the, of the sort that you might get in TV Guide, except yeah. the synopses are completely invented. They keep the character <laughs> names, but it becomes this fantasy slipstream story about uh, audience complicity in media that traumatizes women's bodies. And it and it does the audience complicity thing because of the way she structured it, like you're reading. Um, like the like the Wikipedia synopsis of, of a season of a television show, what reading the story feels like a Netflix binge. Mm, uh -huh. Like the experience of reading the story um, has structurally mirrored the experience of the passive consumption uh, of these trauma narratives. 
Um, and but but because it's reading, you're active, and so she's activating the the complicity, the the, the audience complicity that was in there, there all the time. Mm-hmm. That seems to me as as sort of dynamic and boundary pushing as anything. Um, it's doing it uh, in a form that like the sort of the the blunt tool we have to talk about it is like literary fan fiction, if if such is a thing, mm-hmm. like the name for it. But like I find that a tremendously exciting story. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, no, I, I think there are a lot of people doing a lot of really boundary yeah. pushing things right now. It, it, it is an exciting time to be yeah. reading and writing. I think so too. We're almost at the end of the hour. I do want to ask, what do you have coming up next? Is it, is it too sort of early to sort of ask or? Um, yeah, I, I'm I'm working on uh, a few things. I uh, you were asking me earlier whether or not uh, I felt in uh, in competition with other writers, and to the extent like I felt like other work was doing it. And I think there's been a lot of really good science fiction uh, about determinism coming out lately, mm-hmm. um, from Ted Chang, from Charlie Jane Anders, um, and I'm very interested in, determini- uh, in determinism. So the the thing I'm working on now that I'm most excited about will hopefully see the light of day someday is my determinism story. Okay. And Joe, you're writing an inexcusable science fiction novel. Totally, yeah. And please tell yeah. me that's what it's called. No, no, no. Or it's subtitled. Well, is, is it this book is actually <laughs> your fault, actually. Um, yes, yours, Jonathan. <laughs> it is totally your fault. Um, yeah, you you emailed me and said you were sure I could write a 6,000 word military science fiction story. I've never written anything like that in my entire life, so it was <laughs> complete bulldog. Um, and uh, I, I dug up this thing that I, I had been writing that had a bit of military something mm. in it that might possibly have worked as a thing. And I looked through it and I thought it's not really going to work as an extract from the, the, the thing, but I'll, I'll send it to you. And you, you said exactly the same. Yeah. But poking through it made me think, you know, really, I should write this book. Uh, so I started working on it, and uh, I'm now one chapter from the end. Oh, wow. Um, and uh, it's called Poor Relations. It is it is set on Mars and it is a uh, a Mansfield Park uh, homage. <laughs> and uh, you know how Jane Austen said that that a novel should be a few families in a village and then strangers arrive. Well, there's an alien invasion, <laughs> um, and, uh, and there is alien point of view throughout the book. And this, but this is my gender novel. It is about gender. Uh, and it is set on Mars, it is about gender and nanotech, and it is Monster Park. I cannot be more excited that we're getting your gender novel and John Kessel's Society of Cousins novel in the same year. <laughs> yeah. It is going to be a good year for crunchy gender science fiction. Yes, yes and, and, and Ada Palmer's Seven Surrenders. Yeah. Um, there, there will be a lot of gender. Uh, and, you know, this is great. Isn't it great? There'll be a lot of gender in 2017. Mark your calendars. <laughs> we can reasonably expect that next year. Yeah, it'll be out. It'll be out next fall from tour. As Fantastic. Long as, I, as long as I've got it finished by the end of September, which shouldn't be a problem because I think four days of sitting down and writing uh, without distraction and without it being so ridiculously hot that I can't think like it was the last time I was home. Mm-hmm. But when when I get home after Worldcon, I'm home for eight days. I've been travelling a lot, but I'm home for eight days before I leave again, and that should be enough time to finish this book. That's so wonderful. Uh, it'll be it'll be in. And then after that, I am writing a uh, fantasy novel about Savonarola called, <laughs> <Okay>. called Lent. <laughs> um, and it's about Savonarola, and I'll make you like it. <laughs> That's a challenge. Well... <laughs> until, until we get to that, until we see it, see you again. Thank you so much, Eugene, for making time to talk to us, and you, Joe, for making time to talk to us. We greatly appreciate it. It's been wonderful. Thank you so much for the invite. Oh, always, always.